Welcome to episode 86 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and other low energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher. And joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for a long time now. And Mike also draws on his experiences from working within the healthcare industry. In today's episode in this series, we'll be discussing Rob Wolf's perspective on the bioenergetic view and explain or clarify some of the misunderstandings of the bioenergetic view, as well as trying to bridge the gap and find some common ground while also explaining some of the key differences between our views. And before we dig into this episode or get into this episode, I do want to clarify, make it clear that this is, of course, not personal at all toward Rob. And as I was saying, we are really trying to bridge the gap here and maybe allow this to be the beginning of a longer conversation or discussion together. And with this in mind, with this series, we wanted to dig into some of the points that he brings up in an episode where he was asked about his thoughts on the bioenergetic view. And part of the reason for this is because these are points that we've heard uh, to be brought up pretty frequently, especially from people who are either newer to the bioenergetic view, newer to this podcast, or who are coming from an ancestral health, carnivore, low-carb, paleo, primal uh, way of thinking. And so that's why we wanted to dig into the uh, the responses or the thoughts from Rob. And we also had tried to keep this uh, rather quick. We tried to keep this as a shorter response, but as is typical for us, we ended up getting into the weeds a little bit. And so this became a two-part episode. But again, I do think it was worth it because we did dig into some pretty important points here and some pretty common, again, misunderstandings, I guess you could say, of the bioenergetic view. So with that in mind, in today's episode, we'll be talking more specifically about whether it's stressful to be in a fat-burning, keto-adapted state. We'll be talking about how blood sugar is regulated when we're not eating carbohydrates and how this impacts our stress hormones and thyroid hormones. We'll be talking about whether having stable blood sugar levels on a low-carb diet is actually a good thing. We'll be talking as well about the problems with elevated levels of glucagon, which occurs when someone's on a low-carb diet, and why glucagon is a stress hormone, as well as its impact on thyroid hormones. If you are new to this podcast, then after listening through today's episode, I'd highly recommend you go back and listen through episodes one through seven, where we took some time to dig into and explore the foundations of the bioenergetic view of health. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where I'll link to the studies and articles and anything else that we reference throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any low energy symptoms, maybe these are symptoms you've tried to rectify with a lower carb diet or a primal approach or carnivore uh, type diet, uh, or maybe these are other low energy symptoms. Again, this could be anything from chronic cravings and hunger, low energy or fatigue, to joint pain, weight gain, digestive symptoms like bloating or constipation or any other uh, gut-related issues, brain fog, poor sleep, hormonal imbalances, and on from there. Any of those low energy symptoms, or if you're dealing with any chronic health issues that, again, maybe you've been trying to resolve from these or through these different approaches, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by a lack of energy 
And I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and resolve these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, let's get started. So we have been sent over this clip from Rob Wolf discussing his thoughts on the bioenergetic view and Ray Pete's work on his podcast very briefly, but he had gotten a question about, you know, what he thought about it. And so we figured, you know, someone had sent this over, asked our thoughts on it. We figured we would share our thoughts. And there was a few reasons why we wanted to discuss it. For one, I think that there are some very common kind of misunderstandings or misrepresentations of the bioenergetic view from Rob's response. And I think it's really common from the people who are in that camp to have this view of kind of the the bioenergetic space or, or perspective on health. And so I felt like, you know, we felt like it was worth kind of dispelling some of those misunderstandings or, or kind of bridging those gaps. And I think the other reason why it's important to do that is because the view that we have and that you know of the bioenergetic view i think is actually a lot closer in some ways to the alternative health views than is sometimes thought because the the actions tend to be very different but i think there's a lot more overlap than there isn't and of course the part that isn't overlapped i think is really really important and that's what we'll be discussing today uh, but yeah so those are some pretty you know key differences i want to point those out but also i think there's more overlap than is realized and with this as well i mean I'd like to kind of bridge that gap, maybe find some common ground, and I'd, you know we'd both also be happy to discuss this further further with Rob. So, uh, of course, no, yeah, no like disrespect to him or anything. Just kind of wanted to discuss the differences, and if he's open to it, maybe we'll discuss it on his podcast or our podcast or something like that. Is there anything else you wanted to mention before we dive in, Mike? Yeah, this isn't a. There's no ad hominem here. This isn't a personal attack. This is literally just talking about concepts and ideas and trying to create an understanding for things. I feel like there's also uh, in the lower carb aspect of things, perhaps there's a, maybe not a full flushing out of what we're talking about with the bio bioenergetic idea. And I think part of this was evidenced in some of like the statements and no, you know, not trying to call out Rob or anything like that, but it's, we want to kind of clarify what some of those statements are. Uh, or what some of the perspectives are in the bioenergetic camp so that there's no discrepancy in what, or at least our perspective of the bioenergetic camp, there's no discrepancy in what we're discussing. There's no like, you know, false idea of what we're discussing and then kind of bring together some basic ideas or some, some counter arguments to some of the points that are proposed in opposition to what was claimed to be the point of view or the bioenergetic point of view altogether. And I know that who in this in the point of view, Rob was kind of discussing Ray and Matt Stone. Um, so I don't know what this their what specific views he was pointing on those, but we're going to talk about like the general overarching ideas here. Yeah, yeah, and of course that kind of yeah, not being necessarily a clear representation of where I think the space is at, but that's I think reflected right in in some of the points he describes in terms of bioenergetic view. And of course, for people who aren't aware, this is a view that we subscribe to, that we uh, kind of view things through. Uh, I know we're kind of separating ourselves from that. And I think that that's just helpful because 
I think it's helpful to separate yourself from the views that you hold as opposed to identifying with them and then being offended or insulted when someone, you know, has an issue with that view or anything like that. But just for people who are uh, maybe new to the podcast, this is the view that we that we hold in terms of health. So that's part of why we're more or less defending it or, again, just trying to bridge the gap here. Yep. Perfect. All right. So I'll just start by summarizing a few of the points that Rob made and then I'll you know, well, these are the few points that we'll be dispelling. So the first is essentially that he he's saying uh, that low blood sugar is not a problem if you're fat or keto adapted. And so in those states, it's not stressful. It's not stressful to be keto or fat adapted. And this is in opposition to the general view from the bioenergetic standpoint that low blood sugar is a problem and drives stress. And even if there's not consistent low blood sugar seen in these states, these are stressful states. So we'll explain the details as to why that is. He also, a couple other kind of points he made. One was that in reference to the bioenergetic view being a view where we're trying to increase the amount of energy available to the organism, Rob mentioned that he feels like, or he's of the belief that most people are not actually lacking energy, so we don't need to focus on increasing it. And he used, you know, the evidence of obesity and people being overweight. And we'll explain why that does not mean that people are actually lacking or that people are not lacking energy. And this doesn't mean that they have excess energy. So we'll Dig into that. And then the last is this idea that the bioenergetic view ignores evolutionary biology and uh, is ignoring what has gone on ancestrally. And we'll discuss why that's not the case. There's just some differences in our view of that evolutionary biology and what that means for us physiologically and nutritionally. Yep. Awesome. So we'll dig in with that first one, basically, this discussion that low blood sugar is not a problem uh, or i guess what he says is that low blood sugar is a problem when you're a sugar burning machine but if you're reasonably fat adapted or keto adapted low blood sugar is a non-issue it just doesn't happen so being fat or keto adapted isn't stressful i'm paraphrasing here mike i know you had some direct quotes i don't know if you wanted to to, i can read them if you want yeah just just like kind of the the main one or two that kind of encapsulated that so there's a there's a couple points um he brings up there's the he does acknowledge here that he says early in the keto adaptive state cortisol is elevated epinephrine is elevated if one is properly electrolyted that is largely mitigated so he acknowledges first that in the early stages of keto there is stress mm-hmm. and then what he winds up going and also discussing now these aren't chronologically in order these are just his direct quotes kind of out of order from the video but um low blood sugar is absolutely a problem when you're a sugar burning machine if you are reasonably fat adapted and particularly if you are keto adapted low blood sugar is a non-issue it doesn't happen. And this is one of the things that I think the Ray Pedian folks just don't get. There's a very different scenario if you are even marginally fat fat adapted. He also says here, you look at CGM, so continuous glucose monitor traces of people on a ketogenic diet, particularly people on a carnivore diet. It doesn't change. It's just rock solid. And because the body can produce glucose from a whole host of things, gluconeogenesis from amino acids, from the glycerol backbone of fats, or triglycerides more specifically, and that is not inherently a, sp- a stressful process. Um, so we're going to, the last piece I, I think that's helpful here, he says, so I think that these folks, the Raypedian folks are being really selective, that they're taking the hypoglycemic state of somebody who's carb dependent, primarily carb dependent, and they're applying that scenario in which people are carb independent effectively. And so he says, it concludes all these things lead me to saying it's kind of bullshit that you're just going to paint low carb diets uniformly as some sort of stressful situation. They're not appropriate for all people. So those are the main quotes that we're going to be um, parsing out. 
we're going to clear we're those are direct statements from Rob in the podcast. Those are mm-hmm. not paraphrased. They're not in necessarily in order. I when I we pulled them out together, we tried not to like leave out any section to mischaracterize what Rob was saying. That's why they're kind of dense quotes. So they're they're that specifically indirect what Rob said in multiple elements in regards to the low blood sugar piece. Now what we're going to do is we're going to talk about um why the you don't see low blood sugar inside the keto and carnivore diets. Why that? How, what's the mechanism behind that? Why that mechanism is stressful? And then what our actual position is from the pedian sphere or the bioenergetic sphere, however you want to, whatever you want to term it, in terms of low blood sugar. Because we're not just talking about low blood sugar where you in you eat carbohydrates, your blood sugar peaks up an hour later, and then two hours later it comes back down. And then now you need to use glucagon, adrenaline, cortisol, etc., to bring that blood sugar back up to a normal level. Um, we're talking about like even in those situations where blood sugar isn't having peaks and troughs, as you see in carnivore and keto, what mechanisms are behind that consistent blood sugar and how is that problematic? So we're gonna kind of go through all of that um, and and parse all of that out. So it, it'll involve a steel manning to steal Danny, one of Danny's favorite words. Um, and then also like a discussion of the mechanisms behind and why it's problematic. Right. And and this is part of the reason also why, at least personally, I don't normally use the nomenclature of low blood sugar being a problem in terms of these states because it's, as Rob is saying, it's not actually low blood sugar, right? Blood sugar is very, very stable when you're on a low carb diet. He referenced ketogenic diets. He referenced um, using this for people carnivore. who have- Yeah, carnivore, but he referenced using this for people who have type 1 diabetes. And that is really easy yep. for them to manage the exogenous insulin that they need because their blood glucose is really predictable, very, very stable. And he also mentioned just kind of another, and this I don't remember what the phrasing was, but he mentioned that you don't see Cushing syndrome in ketogenic diets as well. And this was part of what he was saying, like how could it be stressful if you don't see that? So we'll, we'll kind of talk through that as well. But the as we're kind of getting at, in the initial phases, in the initial shift into a low carb fat adapted ketogenic adapted state if you want to put it that way there are dramatic increases in stress hormones uh namely as you said glucagon adrenaline cortisol a growth hormone as well which all of those help to increase blood sugar when blood sugar is decreasing and you'll see major increases in these and that's in the short term then after someone is really adapted you don't see the dramatic increases in those things at baseline uh, other than glucagon which we'll discuss and that is why, and because of that, you see very stable blood sugar, or I guess as a kind of a result of the stable blood sugar, basically what's happening is you're not having blood sugar fluctuations based on carbs that are coming in, but rather you're producing the carbohydrate endogenously uh, through gluconeogenesis. And this is driven largely by glucagon. And so you have pretty stable blood sugar, but our, the problem with this, I think is kind of twofold, but one is that we don't want to just look at this endpoint and we do this a lot, right? It's talked about a lot with cholesterol. You know, you don't want to just point, like paint high cholesterol as, as the problem. We want to consider why it's happening. Same goes for blood sugar, where high blood sugar is not the problem in insulin resistance and diabetes, but rather it's a symptom of underlying issues that we'll talk a little bit about and have talked about extensively before and I'll link to. And by that same kind of thought process, the idea that any time blood sugar increases is bad is based on that same reasoning. And so definitely don't agree with that. And the flip side, again, is just because your blood sugar is extremely stable doesn't mean it's always good. 
And by stable, we mean not really fluctuating. And in this case, that's because that blood sugar is driven, that is kept stable by a steady production of glucose through gluconeogenesis, which requires glucagon, and that comes at a major cost. And I'll get to that in a second, Mike. I know you were going to chime in. Yeah. So the, the one thing I want to just give people an idea of before, like to, to give a context for everything that we're discussing, when you eat carbohydrate, you have a raise in blood sugar, your blood sugar elevates, and then your body will release insulin, etc. And then you basically will see that blood sugar come back down. So the general glucose curve or glucose area under the curve is peaks in an hour, comes back down two hours later. Now, on a low carbohydrate, ketogenic diet, carnivore diet, anything with a very low, low amounts of carbohydrates, you don't see these curves. So that's that's the difference that we're talking about here. Now, in order when when in a regular situation where you have that peak and then two hours later you're coming back down to a, a baseline blood glucose level, you have to elevate these adaptive hormones adaptive or stress hormones and they're the reason they term them adaptive is because they're helping you adapt to the current situation that you have in that moment so in the moment where you've eaten your meal it's about three hours later your blood sugar is coming back down to baseline and it's still continuing to drop you don't have adequate amount of blood sugar available so your body uses glucagon to break down some of, at least initially, the glycogen that you have stored inside your liver to then maintain blood sugar. So the raising of that blood sugar initially and then it coming back down is a normal process. It should happen. It you sh And it's mediated by a, a series of effects, but largely insulin is released in response to the carbohydrate. And an insulin is a master signaling hormone and it's a anab very anabolic hormone that's saying, hey, we have a lot of nutrient, specifically carbohydrate on board. We don't need to keep breaking down or catabolizing, being in a catabolic state of our glycogen, our, our protein tissue, and our fatty acids to create more glucose to flood the bloodstream with free fatty acids. We have it coming in exogenously. Let's build back our stores. Let's, let's you know replace what we just broke down, etc. Now, that creates the curve. Now, at the bottom of that curve, you, you will then activate glucagon again, which is basically saying, hey, we don't have enough. We're going to start breaking stuff down again to, make, to maintain an adequate blood sugar because maintaining adequate blood sugar is extremely important for central nervous system function, for other tissue function as well, like the testicles, the red blood cells, etc. The, the, some of the cells within the kidney are all directly re require blood sugar. Now, on the low-carb side, when you don't have those carbohydrates coming in, you don't have that insulin response, you don't have that drastic increase in blood sugar and then a raise back down to baseline. You just have blood sugar being maintained through the catabolic, catabolic process of glucagon, growth hormone, adrenaline, cortisol to some extent, mostly glucagon after you're fat adapted on a perpetual basis. You're not seeing the curves. So whether the curve is there or not is like, kind of irrelevant to the argument the main point of the argument that we want to get to is you the period where blood sugar is being maintained at a low enough level that you need to trigger these hormones and that's where the really important piece gets gets situated here yeah and so so kind of key points here that obviously regulating blood sugar is extremely important that blood glucose is absolutely necessary for us to live if we can't trigger these stress hormones in order to bring our blood sugar back up when it drops 
will die. Like we need to have enough blood sugar in the blood at all times because it's massively important for the brain. Even if you're keto adapted, you're still using considerable amount of glucose there. You mentioned some other areas as well. So it's very important. That's why we have these counter-regulatory hormones, normally deemed as stress hormones. And the reason why they're also called stress hormones, and this is important because we'll, we'll be talking about this in a moment, is because they're released under stress. And that's because stress puts us in an energy deficit, which often typically involves drops in blood sugar because the glucose in the blood is being used to produce energy. And so as it gets depleted, it triggers the release of these hormones. Now, drops in blood sugar are not the only thing. So you can have maintained blood sugar at slightly higher levels, but increased stressors, so increased energy demands, and that will cause the release of these stress hormones as well. So the stress hormones are directly tied with the energy availability at the cellular level. When there's not enough energy there, they're released. They help to increase fuel availability by raising blood sugar, and that ideally will prevent the continued lack of energy. So that's why they're deemed stress hormones. I think in the low-carb space, we were definitely of this belief at the time. We just thought of those as things that increased when you were psychologically stressed or maybe physically stressed as well, but it was never really pointed out the direct tie with energy availability and the direct tie with blood sugar. So those are really important. I think important to highlight, especially for somebody listening to this who is not already familiar with that perspective. And I'll link back to episodes where we've discussed that in more detail and articles as well. So coming back to this state, as you're saying, when we're not taking the carbs in, we have to maintain our blood sugar on an ongoing basis using gluconeogenesis. And Initially, the initial drop in blood sugar when we're first shifting in will lead to major releases in the stress hormones. But over time, we don't need as deep of the stress hormones just to maintain baseline gluconeogenesis, partially because our glucose needs go down because we start using more fat and ketones, uh, and partially also because there's some adaptation to, uh, to the stress hormones and actually an increased sensitivity to them, which we'll get to. So when we're in a fat-adapted to keto-adapted state and we need ongoing gluconeogenesis, this has to be performed under the presence of glucagon. That is the, the stress hormone that is, needs to remain elevated in order to keep a constant flow of gluconeogenesis. And that gluconeogenesis can be coming from amino acids, whether that's from protein we take in or protein that's broken down from our muscles. You can also use the glycerol backbone from fat and as well as stored glycogen. But at this point in a keto diet, you're not really tapping into that as much because you're not refilling it as much. So what I think is an important piece here from Rob's view, from the low carb view, generally the idea is gluconeogenesis is a normal process. We've evolved to have this process. How could it be stressful? How could it be a problem to be relying on gluconeogenesis for our carb availability? And we'll kind of dig into this a little bit later, but just because we have processes doesn't mean that we want to be relying on them. Of course, if you rely on things that lead to the production of cortisol for excessive amounts, periods of time, we know that's not a good thing. And what we're basically saying is that relying on this process of gluconeogenesis to provide your carbohydrates does a similar thing on a smaller scale, but it builds up over time. And largely that's mediated by glucagon, since that is the main hormone that's at least required in that state if you're not dipping in and out. Side note, for the people who are dipping in and out of ketosis, that means you're relying on those other stress <laughs> hormones every time you go in and out. So I think you can argue that that's worse. Uh, and if you're, yeah, I mean, I would I'll kind of leave it at that. But so the, the important piece here is that we are going to make the argument that gluconeogenesis is inherently a stressful process to further, to use on an to ongoing basis. Yes, to maintain blood sugar. There's a few reasons yeah. for this. And well, there's one underlying reason. And then there are the 
kind of reflections of that reason in terms of the hormones. So the underlying reason is that producing glucose from other substrates is not very efficient. And so I'll share a study here in a second that basically shows that it's 30% less efficient than just using glucose to produce energy. If you wanted to convert amino acids to glucose to energy, it's 30% less efficient. Because of this inefficiency, our bodies, and essentially this is wasting energy, wasting 30% of the amount of energy that you would need if, if you're uh, producing energy from glucose, the, our bodies don't favor this process because they need to, or they favor pro, uh, processes that are energetically efficient so that they can have as much energy as possible. We'll kind of get to that in a little bit. And because of that, our bodies don't favor this and they will, when they have to rely on this process, they will signal it as a, a means of stress or as a sign of stress, as, as a sign of a less than optimal environment where they have to operate under less efficient means. And we'll describe in a second how this ends up decreasing our metabolism overall, causing long-term issues. And this is a protective mechanism because our bodies know that they can't sustain the same energetic requirements when they're getting their glucose from through this inefficient gluconeogenic process. So I'm going to share a quote from this study uh, describing this, this inefficiency. So the study is titled Gluconeogenesis and Energy Expenditure After a High-Protein Carbohydrate-Free Diet. And high protein was around 30-ish percent and maybe 35 percent of of energy and that was the age condition that they're referring to so they state that energy expenditure or resting metabolic rate was greater in the age condition than in the end condition the increase in energy expenditure was a function of the increase in gluconeogenesis the contribution of gluconeogenesis to the change in energy expenditure was 42 percent so that was uh the change in gluconeogenesis was responsible for 42 percent of the increase in energy expenditure and it says that the energy cost of gluconeogenesis was 33 percent and that's relative to glucose. I don't know if I cut that part off in the quote or if that was uh, later on in a different quote, but that 33% is relative to just using glucose to produce energy. Is there anything you want to add in about that, Mike? Um, there's a couple things that I wanted to point out. It, it's the, the overarching picture with the gluconeogenesis process is that you are, rather than having to dip into a stressful situation periodically with taking in carbohydrate and then having to upregulate the counterregulatory hormones to some extent because you're saying if you go too long without eating carbs after being on a carb like having carbohydrate rich meal i'm saying if you don't have carbohydrate on a regular basis if you move mm -hmm. into that low carb keto carnivore etc sphere then mm -hmm. you're relying on the stress process perpetually rather than just relying relying on a small function of glucagon in between meals on or over on an overnight fast on a smaller basis because you still have glucose you still have a uh, glycogen available so yep. rather than just having a like even though with the the blood glucose swings as they would call it in the lower carb sphere you have to rely on glucagon in the other in the, on the flip side without adequate carbohydrate on a regular basis you're just relying on glucagon all the time mm -hmm. especially in the initial period when you start to deplete glycogen and all and uh glycogen on a regular basis and you have to upregulate free fatty acids and fatty acid oxidation well then you're driving adrenaline cortisol growth hormone etc so you're rather than just like having to dip into glucagon you know periodically in between meals with adequate carbohydrate you're just running on it perpetually now so mm -hmm. it's actually can at least from i would say from our perspective worse and then not only that 
while running through gluconeogenesis, as you just pointed out, in comparison to um, to glucose, you're in a situation where you're you're having to spend or you're having to spend more energy to get the same outcome that you would if you just had glucose. So you have a the with gluconeogenesis, you're actually you have a less efficient energy production process. And the other thing to point out here is the gluconeogenesis can occur through multiple mechanisms that we kind of glanced over really quick. So you have the glycerol backbone from triglycerides, which is essentially just stored fatty acids. And then you have uh, amino acids and you have glycogenolysis, so breaking down glycogen. Glycogenolysis after a period of time on a low-carb diet is probably minimal uh, minimal input to the, to the system. It's largely going to be through amino acid catabolism and then also fatty acid catabolism. Now, something that's not, that's directly showed that we're going to talk about in a few minutes is that running heavily on amino acids, actually like on a high protein, low carb diet is worse hormonally than being on a lower protein, high fat diet, because you have this mat with, with a utilization of amino acids for energy production, you upregulate ammonia production. So you really have to be running ketogenic, like a high fat, moderate protein, low carb diet and to not argue against the high elevated stress hormones over a long, longer period of time. So you have that. Um, you're just saying because of the ammonia production in that state, you would still have high glucagon, whether or not you're eating high protein. Yes. But in that state, you would have high cortisol as well. Right. And so worse. the initial argument for Rob was that you would like in these low carb states, you don't see long-term high cortisol, but it's only in the low carb, moderate protein ketosis states that you don't see these hormonal problems. And that's bore out inside the carnivore keto research and also inside the, the groups where it's like, if you're not doing well in keto or carnivore, you need to eat more fat and less protein. And so that's, I think, a primary point overall is that the high protein and using utilizing amino acids as a substrate for gluconeogenesis, there's a limit to that. It becomes problematic. So you're relying largely on fatty acids. And then with the fatty acid piece, Glucagon does drive the gluconeogenesis to a large extent, but involved in that process of liberating free fatty acids is cortisol, adrenaline, and growth hormone. Now, once you're fat adapted, you're not going to see you know these massive out-of-range stress responses, but you still have to drive these hormones in that system as well, and we'll touch on that in a bit as, in, in a couple minutes. You still have to drive these hormonal cascades to continually liberate substrate from your tissues to turn into glucose because you don't have adequate glucose as opposed to just giving your system glucose. So it's a very, it's like a very roundabout way to get adequate carbohydrate on board. And it is driving stress processes overall, which is like counter to what his initial statement was about and not necessarily being stressful. Um, and especially if you're a fat burner, like you, as a fat burner, you are just driving the stress pot process on a continual basis rather than having to use some glucagon when you have a dip in blood sugar. You're driving it perpetually. So you're going to see it a, a flat curve on your glucose, sure. But that doesn't mean anything that it doesn't have ups and, ups and downs. You're still using the counter-regulatory hormones. The problem is the counter-regulatory hormones have to upregulate on the down. Right, right. And so at baseline, as you're saying, high glucagon is going to be present, fat-adapted keto state. Anytime those demands are increased... You're going to then dip into the cortisol and adrenaline uh, much quicker than if you were on a higher carb diet where you would hit the glucagon first. So another way of saying that is that when you're in the low carb state, you're already a step into 
stress. You're already a step into the stress state, which is a spectrum, right? You, you, you have different depths of levels and you see this in terms of the blood sugar response. First, you have glucagon released and then adrenaline and then cortisol. If it dips even further, it's kind of our last ditch effort. And so when you're already relying on glucagon, you're already a step into that process and you're much more prone to the adrenaline and cortisol releases when you increase those energy demands. And so we'll, we'll share a couple of, of studies on that here in a moment. One thing I did want to mention, I, I pulled up that study and there was another quote just a, a moment later describing that it, it states that the cost of gluconeogenesis was 33% of the energy content of the produced glucose. So just for reference, that one actually has the comparison there and explaining that you're using up a third of the energy that you're going to be able to produce from the glucose anyway, just by using the gluconeogenic process, which is a huge amount. And that's why we don't favor gluconeogenesis. That's why it activates stress. If you want to zoom out and look at the evolutionary biology context, which we'll dig into more later, in terms of, of running on this process, it's much less energetically favorable and our bodies favor more energy uh, in, in terms of their signaling. And when there's not enough energy available, on the stronger side, you get cortisol, but even on the weaker side, you get something like glucagon. And as evidence of this, I want to dig into some of those effects of glucagon. And this is largely responsible for a lot of the effects that you see in low-carb diets in terms of thyroid activity. So the first thing I want to touch on here uh, is that glucagon is largely the hormone responsible or driving insulin resistance and diabetes. And so much of the time we're focused on insulin as, a, as if excess insulin is the problem. We've explained extensively uh, why that is not the case and that excess insulin is only occurring because there's an issue with energy production in the first place. And with that, because you already are in this energy deficient state, which again, we'll get to in a little bit as far as what that actually means. We're not talking about calorie deficient, but energy deficient. When you're in that state, you that is what triggers the release of the stress hormones. So when someone who is insulin resistant, they're not producing energy efficiently from glucose. They're in an energy deficit. And so they're producing excessive amounts of the counter-regulatory stress hormones, including glucagon, and that's largely responsible for the hyperglycemia that's seen. Uh, and so we've got a couple of, of quotes here describing this, unless there's anything you wanted to touch on real quick before I share those quotes. Mike. No, go ahead. Okay. So this first quote is from a study titled Glucagon and Type 2 Diabetes, the Return of the Alpha Cell. And they state that patients with type 2 diabetes suffer from fasting and postprandial hyperglucagonemia, meaning excess glucagon, which stimulates hepatic glucose production and thus contributes to the hyperglycemia characterizing these patients. It has become apparent that suppression of glucagon secretion or antagonization of the glucagon receptor constitutes potentially effective treatment strategies for patients with type 2 diabetes. So just describing that glucagon is contributing to the hyperglycemia, both fasting and postprandial, and that blocking this effect, uh, either the production of the glucagon or the effect of the glucagon is very protective in these states. Another quote here from a study titled pancreatic alpha cell dysfunction in type 2 diabetes, old kids on the block, is very much related. And they state that recently numerous findings indicate that the defects of glucagon secretion get involved with development and exacerbation of hyperglycemia in type 2 diabetes. Aberrant alpha cell responses exhibit both fasting and postprandial states. Hyperglucagonemia contributes to fasting hyperglycemia caused by inappropriate hepatic glucose production and to postprandial hyperglycemia owing to blunted alpha cell suppression. Yep. So again, seeing a very similar thing in this in this quote as well. 
showing the issues with excess uh, glucagon production in type 2 diabetes and uh, that this is happening both in the fasting and postprandial state and is what contributes to the hyperglycemia that's seen. And they describe it as inappropriate hepatic glucose production, but I would really say it's extremely appropriate considering the energy deficit that's there and this is the exact adaptive normal response that should happen because our body is trying to uh, recover its ability to produce energy as much as possible and that's what these stress hormones are there for it's just not working which is why it continues on into a pathological state yeah and the energy deficit so i'm going to add some quotes to that but just to touch on it briefly we're going to cover the energy deficit piece mm-hmm. specifically with in talking about the obesity reference that will that rob had talked about so we'll we'll read his quote in a second we'll talk about that in a couple minutes but the uh Diabetes and obesity often go together, and they're characterized together by an energetic deficit at the cellular level with an over with a lot of substrate floating around inside the vasculature. And mm-hmm. one of the main or key features of diabetes is this extreme production of glucagon in regardless of the um regardless of whether you're fed or not. So usually insulin or having carbohydrate will lower that glucagon secretion. It'll it'll shut down its production, the insulin raises, you stop pu- undergoing gluconeogenesis and use creating glucose from fatty acids, from protein, etc. Uh, and then putting it out into the to the blood as as glucose. The insulin will shut that process down. Now there's a little there's talk about regulation. I'm going to discuss that in just a second with some of the regulatory mechanisms there. But in diabetes, that doesn't happen. You just have this constant, consistent effect of glucagon still undergoing gluconeogenesis regardless of whether you eat or not. And the, the parallel here that I just want to tie in is in the low-carb keto carnivore states, it's basically upregulating glucagon in a similar fashion that you would be seeing with diabetes, where you're mm-hmm. constantly relying on glucagon to put out this this glucose output. Now, it's not exactly the same. I don't want to mischaracterize the state, but you have a situation where you're constantly relying on glucagon to increase blood glucose uh, and upregulate free fatty acid oxidation in other tissues and spare that glucose for the central nervous system. You kind of have a similar process going on inside diabetes as well, where a lot of the tissues are actually oxidizing free fatty acids and much of the the glucose that is being created from gluconeogenesis is coming from triglycerides. So it's a there's very significant parallels between the states, and that's why we're discussing the glucagon, the hyperglucagon anemia state of diabetes here, because it's it's a mirror state to some with some differences that we'll discuss between um, the low carb ketosis carnivore states and diabetes. Um, Now the quote that I wanted to share here to interject real quick right before you get to that quote, you you touch on something that I think was really important and probably would have been a nice thing to mention that kind of precedes the blood sugar situation. You know, we've been talking about this energy deficit. That is what leads to the production of these hormones in the state of a low carb diet. An energy deficit is what drives all these responses. It's what ends up driving the increase in stress hormones. It's what ends up driving the ketogenesis, the reliance on fatty acid oxidation is the lack of glucose leading to, and if you're shifting in an immediate short-term energy deficit, when you're, uh, shifting into a low carb state, and then basically an ongoing one that's forcing the the ongoing production of glucose. That is why we need glucose. That's why we use glucose is because it's really great for producing energy. It's why our brains can't use fat for fuel. Yes, they can partially use ketones 
we've discussed this before. I know that it's there's a lot of discrepancy here versus what's talked about in the low carb space. So I'll just refer to some previous episodes where we've discussed this in more detail in terms of the details of why glucose is way more efficient at producing energy than fat. But that is what's responsible for a lot of what are said to be the benefits in ketogenic diets is all of the oxidative stress, the reactive oxygen species production, driving the hormetic responses. We've talked extensively about why this is not ideal to be driving these stress responses. But this is what is underlying this constant need for glucagon and, and gluconeogenesis is an energy deficit just brought out by the lack of carbohydrates. To compare that to type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance, and this is what you were saying was there's a, a little bit of a difference here, is that the problem in those states is not that there's not enough glucose available, but it, that it's not effectively being able to, to be used to produce energy. It's a separate but related issue uh, in which both cases you're not able to produce energy effectively, but the reason why there's a difference here is because in one case, you're just avoiding the carbohydrates. Of course, avoiding the carbohydrates doesn't solve that issue, but in both cases, the commonality is the energy deficit and the driving of glucagon, and then the reliance on free fatty acid production and oxidation of fats. So I just wanted to draw that parallel because you had brought it up, Mike, and uh, I'll let you go ahead with the quote. Yeah, so now I have a couple things to add. Um, the first piece I want to show is that in animal models, basically ab abolishing glucagon directly eliminates the the diabetic state so what they did here is they have i'm going to read this this section here they say experiments performed in mice deprived of glucagon receptors by genetic modification so gluc glucagon receptor knockout suggests that glucagon is essential for the development of metabolic anomalies in diabetes the destruction of pancreatic beta cells and control mice by streptozocin injection induced in 24 hours the appearance of severe hyperglycemia and the metabolic manifestations of diabetes. In contrast, no hyperglycemia occurred and glucose tolerance remained normal after streptozocin injection in mice deprived of glucagon receptor. The reintroduction of a glucagon receptor in liver of glucagon receptor knockout mice with an adenoviral vector induced a marked hyperglycemia and a glucose intolerance after streptozocin injection. These experiments clearly show that the presence of a normal glucagon action in the liver was necessary for the uh, the apparition of diabetes and type one diabetes. So what they're and this this goes hand in hand with diabetes type two, but there's a little bit of def different mechanisms there. But essentially, what they're showing is that in it, so in diabetes type one and type two, uh, type one you have a loss of beta cells, which are insulin producing cells. Type two you have some loss of insulin producing beta cells. But what you more have is a resistance of of the the body's tissues to insulin, so it doesn't effectively respond to insulin. And the, some of the mechanisms we'll talk about in a sec. And what you're seeing here in these states is if you induce type one diabetes in rats by streptozocin's a, a bacterial toxin that they inject into the rats, and it basically destroys the beta cells of the pancreas, so they don't have cells that can produce insulin anymore. If you eliminate the the glucagon receptor in these mice. They don't get diabetes. They don't get the manifestations of diabetes. Um, now, if you then give them a virus that that codes for the glucagon receptor, and so basically the virus will inject that gene into the genome to, to create the glucagon receptor in these glucagon receptor knockout mice, you find that the, the diabetes features of hyperglycemia, um, insulin resistance, etc., it reappears. So... What's what's starting to be discussed, and there's a hypothesis by um, I forget what it's called. Let me see if I can find it here. 
the hypothesis is from these researchers. Um, it's Asin and Unger, and they propose the bihormonal disorder, which is essentially low plasma insulin and then high plasma glucagon. Um, and so what, what they initially discussed is the absence of insulin is responsible for the increase in lipolysis and proteolysis, or so that, which is a breakdown of amino acids, and then glucagon excess is responsible for the increased hepatic glucose production and ketogenesis. So the, fa the state of diabetes is a state not only of insulin resistance or lack of insulin, it's a state of excessively chronically elevated glucagon regardless of the context. So you have mm -hmm. lack of insulin allowing for the upregulation or the, the basically a lack of anabolism, a lack of tissue building, so a breakdown of proteins and fats um, and then glycogen initially. Um, and then you have glucagon, which is driving the process of taking these broken down substrates from the tissues and then diverting them into the production of glucose. So it's a, it, it's the, the glucagon is essential for driving the state. And the, the piece that's quite important here is that in these low carb carnivore, keto diets, et cetera, in order you need glucose. There's not a question of whether or not the body needs glucose. It needs glucose to such an, a, an immeasurably important extent that it'll break down its own tissues to produce glucose, which is counter to the idea that glucose or carbohydrate is not required for human functioning, like those ideas that come out of the low-carb sphere. It's like, it's so important. Go ahead. They say that it's essential and it's an essential nutrient, which doesn't actually have anything to do with, or that it's not essential, right? They say carbohydrate, glucose is not an essential nutrient. That doesn't yeah. mean that it is not essential to our physiology. It means that you don't need to consume it because you can produce it. Fat is also not essential. It's just that you can't create omega-3s and omega-6s, which if you argue, if you want to make the argument that those are essential, it's like point, you know, like 0.5% of your diet would have to be made up of those. So largely fat is not essential either by that same definition. It's people get confused and kind of use the wording in a, in like a misguided or, or a misleading way to make it sound like that means that your body doesn't need carbohydrates. It does. It can just produce them on, on their own. But as you're saying, this is the fact that our bodies do that is actually evidence that these are extremely important required nutrients that we need because we'll go to great lengths to produce them if we don't have them. Also, by the same token, same thing with fat. Fat is essential too. If we don't take it up, we'll produce it from carbohydrate. So this is not a question of are either of these very important to physiology. They both are. But yeah, just kind of a little side note there because there is that misleading claim that people say that carbohydrates aren't essential as if that means anything about this physiology. Yeah, and the other question that, and we'll get to this with the evolutionary stuff, is an idea of essential versus optimal. Just because something gotcha. is a, like, just because something isn't necessarily essential, doesn't mean that consuming it or using it is doesn't make it optimal. So those are right. those are, that's a very like it's diff, it's easy to conflate the those those things, and it's important to not conflate those things. Um, so, but overall, what we're what we're essentially getting at here is that in both ketosis, carnivore, low carb diets, and the diabetic state, you have this this consistent elevation of uh, glucagon and then elevation of gluconeogenesis at the liver. This also explains why you see these prominent keto people, carnivore people, etc. And then also tons of clients that we've worked with come and they have this elevated fasting blood glucose because they're chronically elevating their blood glucose levels on these diets with glucagon. You don't need to have carbohydrate to elevate your blood glucose. And then in the diabetic state, it's the same thing. The elevated fasting blood glucose that you're seeing with people is not because they're eating too much carbohydrate on a regular basis. It's because glucagon is driving gluconeogenesis to a large extent 
overall. And then on top of that, when they're eating carbohydrate, gluconeogenesis is not being shutting, shut down. So they have an elevated baseline of, of glucose in their bloodstream from gluconeogenesis. And then the carbohydrate that they eat on a regular basis is um, additive to that. And then they're insulin, re insulin resistant. So they're not taking up the carbohydrate and target tissues. Something I do want to point out here that is quite important is the your tissues in your body don't need insulin to take up carbohydrate. Only certain tissues require insulin to take up carbohydrate over baseline levels on a regular basis. And that's going to be your liver, your fat tissue, and your muscles. And that's because those, those tissues have a GLUT4 receptor, which takes up the carbohydrate. So those tissues are what becomes insulin resistant under, under the under these states um now the other thing to keep in mind though is that even if your carbohydrate eat and, and you see this in diabetes if you don't have a lot of carbohydrate on board and you start drastically ramping up fat oxidation you become insulin resistant even in non-target tissues and if you have carbohydrate going to non-target tissues then what happens is pervate dehydrogenase can be shut down and you start pushing things into lactic acid metabolism because you cannot end, you cannot bring the carbohydrate into the Krebs cycle as well. So it's a slightly tangential feature of these states, but it's also a problematic state because you're forcing the rest of the tissues of the body to not use carbohydrate, to run on fatty acids, which there's a problem with running on the fatty acids. And then you're driving glucose production through gluconeogenesis by breaking down proteins and fats. So essentially breaking down your stores and then driving that to, to uh, using that specifically for your brain function. So you're driving a glycolytic carbohydrate metabolism in a high fat state by lowering pruvate dehydrogenase function. You're driving fatty acid oxidation, which comes with ROS, et cetera. And then you're, you're taking down tissues and fatty acids and, and protein and even some of the uh, protein and fats that come from the diet. And you're then trying to turn that into glucose to provide a substrate for the brain. Ketones can also be a substrate for the brain, but only up to 60%. And so, and then, then it's an inefficient process overall. So it's like you're relying on all these backup pathways to try to produce this glucose and then, and, and like, it's an inefficient process and there's problems with it overall. And then it's also the feature that you see in the diabetic state. And then you're also seeing trends in people who are running this long time where it's like, yeah, their blood glucoses are elevating. They're getting large amounts of free fatty acid in their serum. They're having high amounts of glucagon and then they're having physiologic peripheral insulin resistance. So it's like you're driving similar path, you're driving similar states. Now the kicker is what's going on at the cell in terms of between diabetes and, and the, the low carb keto individual, right? I think that there's a difference there where somebody who's on low carb and keto, they can probably come off low carb and keto after a period of time and be able to, to not be diabetic. Whereas a diabetic may have a hard time coming, like <laughs> just getting off of being a diabetic and then, and then using carbohydrate effectively. So there's differences in the pathology there, but overall you're driving similar pathways. And then I, uh, uh, as to mention there, you're also with that, that you pointed out, Jay, is that you're already one foot into the stress doorway. So when you start to move further into stress, when you get exposed to another stress, you, you can start driving these other hormones more easily. And you see that, and we'll discuss that with exercise in these states. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that's that context. And so to kind of wrap this, this up in terms of glucagon, I wanted to A, just mention in terms of that study you mentioned showing, and, and the studies I referenced too, that 
the glucagon is the driver of the diabetic state, as you were saying. It is the driver of the hyperglucose, the excess glucose, not the insulin resistance, right? The insulin resistance is really a misnomer. We actually have inhibited glucose metabolism. It's really is little to do with uh, insulin, but rather is driving a state where A, the cells are filled with excess glucose, so they can't take up more. And that happens even without insulin also. Even in those in those tissues that have GLUT4, there's still just concentration gradients will allow, allow them to uptake glucose, but that can't happen when they're full of glucose. They're not converting, because they're not converting it to energy. So we have an energy deficient state, which is triggering stress, triggering this glucagon, which is causing the increase in blood sugar to make up for it. And the blood sugar is not being used. And that is what triggers excess insulin to be produced. It's a response to the glucagon. It is not the glu- it's not the insulin first and then the glucagon. It's the glucagon first. And so you referenced, you know, we've both referenced some of these researchers talking about this. There's some really great research on the insulin side talking about this as well from a researcher with the last name Sunksen, S-O-N-K-S-E-N. I've referenced his studies in the past, but he basically talks about how when insulin is administered, he talks about this whole process from the same perspective. And when insulin is administered in these states, it's not working by increasing glucose uptake necessarily. It does a bit, but largely by opposing the effects of glucagon and inhibiting hepatic glucose production. And that's what's helping to decrease the fasting blood sugar. So, and again, the the name for that insulin's effect in that way is it's kalonic. It's, it's called a kalone. And so he talks a lot about that, some interesting research that I'll reference. But to kind of wrap up this glucagon piece, the point that we're getting at is glucagon is not benign. It is a feature of the stress response. We see it in these states where the reason why we're bringing it up that it has this huge role in insulin resistance and diabetes is because that is a very clearly uh, metabolically deranged state that is driven by the presence of this glucagon, uh, which is, again, also driven by the inhibited glucose metabolism, but that this is not a, a hormone that we want to be driving and is a part of the stress cascade. A couple other important points here to note as far as glucagon goes, just to wrap up that part, is that another way that we, another piece of evidence that suggests this that this glucagon is directly anti-metabolic and stressful is that it inhibits the conversion from the inactive T4, the inactive thyroid hormone T4, to the active thyroid hormone T3. This largely happens in the liver. And so the glucagon directly inhibits the DIO dinase enzymes that allow for that conversion. And along the way, it'll then lead to lower T3 and increased reverse T3. And what this basically means is it puts you in a state where you have low active thyroid hormone and you have a lower metabolism. And again, you won't see this short term because short term, you you have all these stress hormones that actually increase your energy expenditure through a very stressful means, not something Including you glucagon. Right, including glucagon. And then of course, adrenaline and cortisol in massive amounts. But over time, you get this thyroid suppression that leads to a low metabolism in the long run. That causes major issues. And there's a ton of research showing this happening in low carb diets and in excess glucagon states or, or by administering glucagon. So- that's saying very clearly, and again, the these normal responses, these adaptive, evolutionarily consistent responses to a low-carb diet are what cause that situation. And again, just kind of using this as evidence for a reflection of the fact that this is driving a stress state that is not ideal, unless you want to argue that a low thyroid state is ideal. That's kind of a separate argument. We'll talk, I guess, a bit about that in terms of energy and evolution, but we are certainly arguing that that's not a good thing. And Rob didn't mention that he's arguing that it's a good thing either. Some people do argue that, and that's, again, a different conversation. But at the very least, if that's happening, we have to acknowledge that just the lack of carbohydrates puts us into that sort of state. Yeah. The last thing I was going to mention, just to wrap up the glucagon piece before talking about 
the excess stress that we also see in other contexts of low-carb diets is that glucagon, and we've been talking about this, because it drives the production of glucose from amino acids, also from glycerol backbones from, from triglycerides, it will lead to muscle wasting if there's not enough dietary protein coming in. And so you see that in states where we don't, not only don't have carbs, but we don't have protein, you see muscle wasting, for example, fasting. And a lot of the research looking at fasting now is suggesting that we're seeing this muscle wasting, this loss of fat-free mass. And that is coming because you're putting yourself in a state where you need to rely on these stress hormones and you don't have protein available to produce the, the glucose, which is still stressful as it is. But because you don't have that available protein from your diet, you're pulling it from your muscles. So that's another piece here. And we'll kind of talk about this in a moment. We'll come back to just this fact that we have to, like when you're in that state, you're also much more prone to muscle catabolism. Yeah. The, the piece I was going to add here, um, so there was two pieces I want to add, specifically about the, um, the thyroid piece first. A lot of people will say that they don't get, and this was something that Judy, I think, had discussed when we were talking about, um, when we did our podcast and, on her article but that they're not hypothyroid because their TSH wasn't elevated and their T4 wasn't wasn't low or something along those lines. And just a specific, more nuanced discussion or in more like a further step from what you're saying, the diiodinase enzymes convert T4 to T3 by removing an iodine group. Um, now, in these low-carb states, there's an adjustment in the diiodinase enzymes function or expression. So some of the diiodinase enzymes will increase the conversion of T4 to active T3, but others will increase the conversion of T4 to reverse T3. So what, mm -hmm. what I've seen with clients, and I think you've seen as well, is that TSH and T4 can be fine. Maybe they're completely in range. Maybe they're smack in the middle of the range. And then when you start, when you start to get into T3, you start to see a lower T3, and you start to see a higher reverse T3 if you're testing T3. So, and, and this is extremely important because T4 is not active thyroid hormone. And TSH doesn't tell us anything about what's going on with thyroid hormone at the cellular level. So you could, you know, if somebody comes to me, I'm freezing cold, I'm having insomnia, and, you know, I'm tired all the time, I'm fatigued, and then you go and you, and you look at their thyroid, well, but my thyroid hormone's fine, and then it's like, no, your TSH, a low TSH doesn't mean anything. It doesn't tell us much of anything. A high TSH can tell us hypothyroidism, but a low TSH doesn't tell us anything about hypothyroidism. What, what, and the same thing with T4, you can have a, a normal T4, but if your conversion at the, at the cellular level, what's going on specifically at the cell is low from T4 to T3, then you will still be hypothyroid. And so there's, there's quite a few interesting studies about this, but you really need to look at the entire system. And with the low carb piece, you're not seeing overt traditional hypothyroidism with a high TSH and lower T4 and T3. You're seeing perhaps a normal TSH, perhaps a mid-range or low to mid-range T4, and then you're seeing a high reverse T3, and then you're also seeing a, a lower T3 or perhaps mid-range T3. And that's and then you're seeing classical symptoms of hypothyroidism. And it again, mm -hmm. the the state, the glucagon is adjusting the 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 signaling for the diiodinase enzymes at the cell and at the liver, so that it's driving this the you're basically in a state, you're triggering a state that's saying, hey, I don't have adequate energy on board. And carbohydrates right. and thyroid hormone directly relate together. Um, I don't know if you want to say anything about that. Yeah. So as far as the TSH goes, I just wanted to mention also that it can not only be normal because maybe there's normal T4, but not enough T3, but also the excess stress hormones, not necessarily glucagon, but cortisol especially, will also suppress TSH. 
So you might see a very low TSH in a low carb state. You might see a lot of signs of high cortisol, and you know maybe regardless of like you'll see fine TSH whether it's because of what they'll call you they call it euthyroid six syndrome, which is where you're not converting the T4 to T3. Normally they only identify it in like really severe illness and hospitalized patients, but it exists in people who are semi-functional and just you know having typical hypothyroid symptoms and so that is that will lead to just normal tsh but still hypothyroid states but also you'll see suppressed tsh from cortisol which again this is why what you were you know part of why or another reason why low tsh does not mean that thyroid activity is okay because it can be suppressed by these stress hormones so i just wanted to add that piece in yeah and then the other thing that i wanted to to just drop in here is um there's some information basically showing that, and I'm going to pull it up right here in a sec, that glucagon is directly involved in the stress cascade. So it is a stress, it is like a typical stress hormone and, and it's elevated in the same, in the same situations that you would see catecholamines and, uh, and, uh, the glucocorticoids. So I'm just going to read something really quick here. And it's basically just going to, we're basically showing that glucagon is, a classic or can possibly be considered a classical stress hormone. Um, here we go. So they start here. Um, basically, they say recently there's been an interest in the in the finding that glucagon increases energy expenditure. This observation produces a conundrum. Why does a hormone that counteracts hypoglycemia, a state of energy deficiency, also increase energy expenditure? This could be explained by a more wide-ranging role that, include, that includes aiding in physiologic stress res- responses to stress. Then they come down here and they talk about glucagon in stress. In animal models, large elevations in plasma glucagon are observed immediately after acutely stressful stimuli. Hyperglucagonemia is well recognized in patients under a range of physical stress states, including trauma, burns, surgery, sepsis, hemorrhage, uh, acute myocardial infarction, cardiac arrest, and hypoxia, including in neonates. Very high plasma glucagon concentrations are seen in diabetic ketoacidosis and contribute to hyperglycemia in the setting. In all these pathologic scenarios, hypoglycemia is not a primary driver for glucagon secretion, and instead other provoking factors must be thought. Um, Now, the reason this is important is because the, when when you're looking at, like, there's an idea already that you don't want to elevate cortisol and adrenaline on a long-term basis. But when we, when you when we recategorize what the idea of stress is, when we define stress as this energy deficit, and you, you basically the stress hormones are trying to correct that energy deficit, what you're seeing is that glucagon is directly involved in that same definition. So it's the same thing. It's it's glucagon, adrenaline, growth hormone. Now growth hormone does have other effects, but there's there there's nuance in there. But glu- glucagon, adrenaline, cortisol, growth hormone, etc are all involved in mustering up this uh, the stress response. And we discussed that in, in a recent video we did discussing, um, what's it called? Discussing the uh, mitochondrial responses to stress and then like seeing yep. the 200% increase in energy metabolism during stress with that largely increasing the, um, the fatty acid oxidation and decreasing oxygen uh, or decreasing carbon, di- carbon dioxide production, so overall de- decreasing the respiratory quotient. So you're seeing in these states, um, which again, that's also another pathological feature of a high carbohydrate uh, or low carbohydrate, high fat diet, is a lack of CO2 production, which decreases the Bohr and Haldane effects and delivery of oxygen and nutrients to the mitochondria, 
and is part of a slowing of the system on top of this. But it, that's a little bit tangential. Overall, what you're seeing is that the glucagon is part of that stress cascade. It's involved in mediating a lack of um, a lack of immediate energy availability with the catecholamines and the glucocorticoids. And being in a low carb state, regardless of whether or not you're having blood sugar ups or downs, is relying. It's chronically putting you in a state of an energy deficit, requiring the use of these hormones to cor to to correct that energy deficit. And then there's backup pathways built in, such you like, for example, utilizing ketones and whatnot, or fatty acids for gluconeogenesis, um, etc., so that you don't have like complete muscle and and body catabolism. Yeah, absolutely. And and as you were saying, we talked about that in the in the response. You know in what you were saying earlier in terms of the energy expenditure that's increased in response to stress. We talked about that in in that study. And of course, glucagon playing a big role there. There's also some research showing that the release of calcium is necessary for that stimulation of energy production from glucagon. Again, just showing that that is something that only happens in an energy deficit. And we're doing it through these backup means. You mentioned fatty acid oxidation and all the costs that come with that. Yep. So yeah, very important points there. All right, we're going to end this episode there and pick back up in part two, where we'll be discussing whether low-carb diets increase cortisol over time, whether tolerance to stress is improved on low-carb diets, why being overweight or obese is not a sign of excess energy, how the bioenergetic view incorporates evolutionary biology, and how this differs from the ancestral health model, and we'll also discuss what we think of Paul Saladino's interpretation of the, quote, repeat diet. If you did enjoy this episode, please leave a like or comment if you're watching on YouTube or leave a review or five-star rating on iTunes if you're listening elsewhere. All of those things really do a lot to help support the podcast and are very much appreciated. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast. You can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we referenced throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any low energy symptoms, maybe these are related to the blood sugar regulation that we discussed today. Maybe you've been dealing with various issues since going on a low-carb diet or uh, you know, trying to resolve any of these issues using a low-carb diet. Maybe you've had some success, maybe you haven't. Either way, if you're dealing with any of these low-energy symptoms or issues, things like chronic cravings or hunger, low-energy or fatigue, chronic pain or joint pain, weight gain, digestive symptoms, brain fog, poor sleep or insomnia, hormonal imbalances, or any other low-energy symptoms or chronic health issues, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by a lack of energy. And I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and resolve these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, I'll see you in the next episode.